just imagine how terrified they wanted to make my five-year-old. It was a city sheriff with a literal gun in a holster on his waist. They literally called the police to come and tell my five-year-old Black son the severity of his actions. And that stuck with me. It stuck with me. I realized I have to get him out of here. Welcome to Flourish in the Foreign, an award-winning podcast that celebrates, elevates, and affirms the voices and stories of Black women living and thriving abroad while exploring living abroad as a pathway to wellness. I'm your host, Christine Job, a Black American woman with Trinidadian roots, podcaster, business strategist, and entrepreneur based in Valencia, Spain. Hey everyone, welcome to Flourish in the Foreign. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode. This is the final week to sign up for my one-on-one Move Abroad with Intention consultations. If you've signed up to the email list, you have known about this for a long time. If you are not signed up to the newsletter, then maybe this is the first time you're hearing about it. And I'm sorry about that for you. This is a limited time offer only for the month of March 2023. If you're listening to this episode in the future, and are like, hey, I would love to do that. No worries. You can always sign up for the Move Abroad with Intention self-study course, which is a five-week course that takes you from setting your intention to move abroad to finding employment abroad, money management, relocation, packing, unpacking, all those things developing community, handling homesickness and isolation, and preparing yourself for long-term stay or repatriation. You can sign up for the one-on-one consultation chats via the link in this description or on the website flourishintheforeign.com. This Black woman created an award-winning podcast, might I add, is a labor of love, but y'all know it, labor nonetheless. So I'm asking you all to support this here podcast. You can go to buymeacoffee.com slash flourish foreign and support this podcast by buying me a coffee, tipping the podcast, or even purchasing some of the equipment, software, stuff like that, that makes this podcast happen. Another way to support this podcast is by writing a review of this podcast and rating it five stars on whichever podcast player you're currently listening on. A really great way to support the podcast is to make sure you are following the podcast on all of our social media channels. So that's YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and Pinterest. Go ahead and do that. It's a really easy way that has a tangible effect on this podcast. And of course, share this podcast. If you have a blog, a vlog, a podcast, please share it with your audience. Please share it with your mom, your dad, your friends, your family, and the coworkers that you like. I deeply, deeply appreciate all of your support. Now on to the next episode. Season four, episode five. 
Today's episode features Ani Lacey. She is an artist who has studied history, philosophy, and fine art. Her interest is in ceramic practices transmitted through family lines and through traditional apprenticeships, often in rural or working class communities. She explores questions around visual culture, language, permanence, migration, memory, and labor through all aspects of her work. And she has been living in England since 2020. I'm so grateful to Ani for her transparency and her vulnerability in sharing her story with us all. So I'm going to let Ani tell you all about it. My name is Ani Lacey, and I am 39 years old. I currently live in Bath in England, but right now I'm in Japan on a work assignment for the next few months. I came to England in October of 2020. Prior to that, I was abroad for another six months. I was in a different country. I was in Mexico, but I had to go home to the U.S. to get my new visa. So I kind of consider that a separate living abroad thing. I grew up in Michigan in rural Michigan, but all around. I don't really have a hometown because when I was very young, under 10 years old, I was actually taken from my family and I was placed in foster care. So living in foster care, I moved around quite a bit. I never got adopted. I aged out of foster care at 19 in 2002. So I never got adopted. I lived with a bunch of different families. And in addition to living with a bunch of different families, I lived with, for instance, I lived with one Mexican family that had only been in America for a couple of years. I lived with a Polish family, a German family. I lived with, of course, African-American families. So I lived with a bunch of different types of people. And I definitely think that impacted my wanderlust as I got older. Um, It wasn't until I was about maybe 31 or 32, that I looked back and I realized I have not lived in the same house for more than two years in my entire adult life. So even after I purchased a home, I purchased a home when I was 22. And by the time I was 24, I was like, you know what? That's over. That's done. And I moved from Michigan to North Carolina. So I sold the house and I moved on. And it wasn't until I was in my early 30s that I stopped and I really thought about that. And I do think that it goes back to my childhood of moving so much and meeting different people. Even though I was in Michigan, I was still meeting so many different people from so many different cultures and backgrounds, like all the different foods and different like things that people did in their homes were all very different. So getting used to that as just being my life. And it's been my life. So I'm almost 40 years old now and I still live like that, really. I asked Ani if she attended university and if she did, if she had the opportunity to study abroad. So yeah, I did. I went to college when I was 18. Right after high school, I went to a community college in Michigan. And then after a year there, I transferred to a university in Kalamazoo, Michigan. So Western Michigan University, where I finished out my bachelor's degree. I actually studied history and philosophy. So not a linear path at all. I wanted to study art, but I had just reconnected with my birth mother the year that I started college. So the year that I graduated from high school and I wanted to go to art school in Chicago and she thought it was a terrible idea. And just being a young person who really was looking for acceptance, I said, you know what, forget it. I'll go to a local community college. I'll go to a university. I'll study history. I'll be a lawyer. (laughs) You know, like that's totally different than like being an artist, but I did. I went to university So I graduated at 22. I took a year off between graduating. I got a degree, a Bachelor of Arts in History with a minor in philosophy. 
And I worked for a year at the Michigan State Supreme Court. So I worked in their Child Welfare Services Division. I had been an intern for them before I graduated. So I worked there and then I was accepted to law school in Chicago. Finally, it's like, finally, I'm going to Chicago. And then I became pregnant with my son. (laughs) And so that sort of derailed those plans, which was fine in the long run. But before I graduated, I did study abroad. My first trip abroad was to Barbados in 2005. So I went there just shy of two months. And one of my closest friends from university went with me. And it was just wonderful. So we were two history majors with a group of archaeology majors. So we got to see the excavation of a slave market in Bridgetown, which is what they were researching. So we went out there the first day and it was hot, (laughs) extremely hot because we went in July. And so we got our little spoons, and our little paintbrushes. So we did the archaeology thing. And then we were like, all right, good. We're historians. We're going to the archives. So we went to the National Archives and that was like our job to do research to support the dig that they were doing. But that was my first experience abroad, and I absolutely loved it. Most people are probably familiar with Barbados as being a majority Black country. It was absolutely transformative for me. So most of the other students, my friend and I were both African-American. The other students on the trip were all white. (laughs) So when we went out together, of course, we're clocked as these are foreigners, they look different. But when my friend and I would go on our own, when we would ditch all the other white students and we would just get on the local bus, it was so freeing. As long as we didn't speak, we didn't reveal our American accents. It just felt like I it was an invisible weight I did not know I had been carrying, honestly. I remember the first time I walked through a mall and no one looked at me twice. No one followed. It was like nothing. And it was funny because two years before that, I remember I had been walking with all of my friends, all my white friends in Michigan through a mall, and one of the girls shoplifted. And we went into a store that one of my friends worked at, and she said, oh, security just called and said, there's a group of people, and there's a Black girl wearing a hoodie, that's me, and they're shoplifting. And so we're looking at each other, what's happening? And it was this other girl. It was this other girl. She shoplifted and no one else in the group knew that she was shoplifting. And that's how we found out she was shoplifting. But it was so bizarre. I'm like, why does it have to be the black girl in the hoodie? Do you know what I mean? Like it was just, ah. But then two years later, I found myself in Barbados and I felt so comfortable. And I was just like, you know what? (laughs) If I can live, is this white privilege? What is this? I love it. Because like you just, we walked down the street, we went to the beach, we went anywhere we wanted. Nobody looked twice at us. Nobody bothered us. It was just amazing. Just amazing. So yeah. So I fell in love with getting a break from America. At that point, I was just like, you know what? As often as I can, I'm just going to go somewhere else and just do something else. Not deal with this shit. So after Ani's transformative time in Barbados, I asked her, what did she get up to next? So when I got back from Barbados, I didn't really, I was still at the very beginning of opening up my mind and understanding that I was free to do whatever I wanted to do with my life and that the whole world was open to me. So I was 22 when I got back and I went to work. I didn't really think much of it. I went to work. I bought a house that year. I was planning on going to law school and I thought I'll make money. I'll become successful and I'll be able to take vacations. It did not occur to me at that point in my life at 22, that I could simply move abroad, that I didn't have to be tethered to America in that way. That took several more years. And it took me having a child, it took me having a son and seeing how America treated him 
honestly, for me to really think about it. But yeah, for the, so for the next, I would say until I was about 29. So probably the next six or seven years, I just didn't think about moving abroad. I just thought if I can make enough money, I can like have vacations. I could be the person that vacations internationally. Essentially, in every episode of the podcast, I ask my guests to share their move abroad journey. And it never really starts at deciding to purchase a ticket, right? It's always underlying factors, things that are going on in their life. Sometimes it's years in the making in a subconscious way, and it seems very spontaneous. And yet all of the groundwork was just laid as they moved along in their life. So when I asked Ani to share with us her journey to move abroad, she shared, as you will soon hear, a quite upsetting uh, story about her son, her young son at the time, with police. Now, there's no death or anything like that that's happening in this story, but it could be quite upsetting for some of you. If you are not in the mood for it today, which is okay, you can go ahead and skip about five minutes and I'll see you there. Now I'm going to let Ani continue her story. So at 29, I was living in Charlotte in North Carolina and I loved it there. It was It's not majority black. It's not Atlanta. Nothing's Atlanta, but it was still better than Michigan. It was lovely. It, I felt very comfortable. And then it, the time came for my son to go to school. And so... I enrolled him in school. We were living in a neighborhood, Myers Park. So people who are familiar with Charlotte will know the neighborhood. It's pretty good, like upper middle class, very calm and quiet, nice neighborhood. The school that I sent him to, I was just so ignorant of the issues around schooling and children. I didn't realize that he would be the only Black boy in his entire grade in a school in a town like Charlotte. It just never occurred to me. So some things happened there that were very like, traumatizing, I guess, in a way, or just eye-opening, I should say. He was about five or six in kindergarten. And I remember getting a call from the school and the principal said, we called the police. And I'm like, what happened? So my five-year-old, my five-year-old son, little tiny, two and a half foot tall kid, had like circle time in kindergarten. And there was a colored rug. And so the kindergarten teacher had assigned everyone a colored square. And she said, when it's story time or circle time, you sit on this square. Now, my son's on the autism spectrum and he takes everything literally. He went to sit on his square. There was another kid sitting on his square and he pushed the kid. And so I thought, oh my God, this kid must be terribly injured. What is it? Did my kid hawk out? What is happening? So I rushed to the school. I'm like, oh, wow, I'll take care of it. What's happening? Should I apologize to the other parents? It must be severe for the other parents to insist that the police be called. And so the principal says to me, no, the other parents didn't want the police called. The other parents said, it's fine. They're just kids. We decided to call the police so that he could understand the gravity of what he did. And so I walked to the classroom and I remember there were four kindergarten classrooms. So each classroom had about 25, 26 students. And I looked in each door and I realized there are no other black kids. Now, this is Charlotte, North Carolina, and I think it's maybe 30 or 40 percent black. You know, it's not majority black, but it's, there's a good chunk of us there. And I said to myself, now, how do you have 100 kindergarten students and you have no other black kids? And so then it hit me. Oh, this is very dangerous. This is very dangerous. And I thought to myself of my own upbringing, because my son's a lot more middle class than me, if you meet him. So I thought of my own upbringing, 
My father died in prison in 2019. My father was taken to prison when I was six years old. I've known many young Black men who have been terrorized by police. And I thought to myself, if he had grown up in that environment, just imagine how terrified they wanted to make my five-year-old. It was a city sheriff with a literal gun in a holster on his waist. They literally called the police to come and tell my five-year-old Black son the severity of his actions. And that stuck with me. It stuck with me. I realized I have to get him out of here. I cannot in good conscience. And I know it's different for everyone. People have different ways to deal with it. For my situation, having grown up in foster care, not having a great support network, not having a lot of money. You know, I had been educated. Thankfully, I'd went to university, but I still didn't have a lot of money. I didn't have a lot of social resources or capital. And for people listening to this, I'm light-skinned, so I want to say that because it's, I think, important to understand the dynamics in America. One, as a woman, it's a little bit different. Two, as a light-skinned woman, it's also a little bit different. And so my son is darker-skinned with dreadlocks. And they treated him in a way that I had my eyes opened. And I said, there's no way. I'm not, I'm just not going to sit by. I just, I'm not. So yeah, it's a little kind of like still emotionally overwhelming 10 years later to think about what happened. But it's severe the way that young Black boys are treated in schools in America, the way that that the people around them socialize them. It's either you're the jock, you're the comedic relief, or you're dangerous, you're the drug dealer. And these are children. There's only so much you can take of people around you pouring an idea into you, no matter what. When he comes home at night to me and I tell him, no, you're smart, you're free, you can do whatever you want to do. If he's there eight hours a day, that's going to be a lot to try. No matter how good the home life is, it's going to be a lot to try to deal with. So I pulled him out. I decided to homeschool and I started making a plan. And I said to myself, I'm going to figure out how to get us abroad. I didn't know where yet. I still had to do more research. I just was ignorant of what the world was. But yeah, so I I started homeschooling him. There were a lot of issues with that. I dealt with just a lot of legal trouble that I should not have dealt with. At the time, he was below the age for compulsory schooling in North Carolina, which is six. He was under six. But when I removed him from school, the principal called Child Protective Services on me and said I was neglecting his education. Yes, it was a big deal. And so I started to realize how deep it went in America. And this is from a girl who grew up in the countryside in in Michigan. It was something that I, it just wasn't as blatant as it was in North Carolina. And so I just never really understood it until the time came to protect my son. And I had a therapist at the time and she said, oh yeah, mama bear came out. And I was like, yeah, because this is not, you're not like America cannot have my child. So yeah, so that was the motivation around age 29 that made me say to myself, I have felt a place where you can walk down the street and just be a human being. And I would like to give that to my son, at least during his formative years. I wasn't yet sure. I feel more sure now. I wasn't yet sure that I would be able to financially and socially and emotionally sustain us abroad so that he could get a second citizenship, so that he would have that sort of flexibility. But I thought to myself, I can make it happen so that at least while he's growing up, he is in a place where he doesn't feel targeted. He doesn't have people pouring these negative stereotypes into him so that if he does have to go back to America, because at this point, this is his only citizenship, 
if he does have to go back to America at some point, he's a stronger person. He's grown up stronger and he knows himself. What can sometimes be perpetuated in some Facebook forums and just in these internet streets is a just complete lack of preparedness. A lot of people encouraging people to just YOLO and move abroad with $5. And no, we don't support that here at Flourish and Foreign. Um, that's me wanting the best for you, actually. So I asked Ani to share with us her first stint abroad and how she prepared for that adventure. You're right. Like you, you have to prepare in some way. And I, every time I think of the hammock and the tacos on the beach, I think like, hello, scurvy. People just don't really think about, (laughs) you can't actually live like that. It's not possible. And it's kind of funny because I ended up in Mexico in February, 2020. And by April, 2020, we were locked down. So I literally had a Groundhog's Day. I was in Playa del Carmen living in a condo and everybody emptied out. There was one Canadian couple. There was this single mom, Mexican mom. And there was a guy from San Marino for a while and then he left. But it was just us and our pool and the pool guy and the security guy. And every day I would get up and sit in the hammock, go for a swim, go back to my condo, make lunch, and then just sit. And then the next day I did it again. And I did that for 90 days. So no, that is not how you move abroad. Don't do that. It was terrible after a week. I felt like I was going insane. But yeah, so a lot of things do have to happen for you to really make that emotional shift to move abroad. And so the things that happened in my life are not things that I think could be planned, but I think there are things that happen with a lot of expats, maybe in different ways that allow them to emotionally disengage with America because that is our homeland. That's where we're from. Most of us for generations, like my family goes back for like most African-Americans to the pre-revolutionary war days. So we've been there a long time. It's really, it's an emotional step to leave. So after I left North Carolina, I went back to Michigan, which is where my family is from. And I spent two years there preparing. I lived with relatives and saved money and did things like that. And during that time, my cousin died. My cousin is 10 months older than me. She had three kids under the age of five. She was dealing with a lot of issues of systemic racism as well. And emotionally, she was just such a sweet, sensitive person, just a really lovely person. And she just could not handle it. And she was 31. So it was kind of shocking that she went to bed one night. She had been ill. She'd been dealing with a lot of stress and trauma. But she went to bed one night and she didn't wake up the next day. And the coroner just said her heart stopped. And I'm like, she's 31 years old. How does that happen? Like racism, stress. We've everybody, we talk about like the issues of health that we deal with as Black women in America, as Black men in America, things like that. But I saw it firsthand. I saw it kill my cousin. So that was like another strike. And then less than a year later, my grandmother died. Now, my grandmother was the linchpin for me. When I was taken to foster care, my grandmother was not around. She was living in Colorado. My grandparents had divorced. And so she was off living a different life. But during that time, she'd always written me letters and she'd always tried to stay in contact and tried to keep custody and do what she could. And she was really the person who always made me feel at home, always made me feel welcome. So when she died, it was easier for me to disengage. When she died, it was just like, what is keeping me here? Like, I still have cousins. I have siblings, people that I keep in contact with over social media. We do FaceTime, stuff like that. But I don't think I would have been able to leave if my grandmother was still alive. 
at least not in the way that I have left. Because very often I'll think to myself, I mean, it's less often now because it's been about eight years since she died. But I think to myself, I need a hug. <laughs> like I need to go. And so I would get on a plane and go get a hug, you know, if she was still here, but she's not. And so that sort of has allowed the environment for me to be able to disengage from America. After she died, I moved to Arizona because I had another cousin there who had the hookup at a job, as Black folks tend to do. So she had the hookup. So when I got a job there, it was paying really well. And I stayed with her for a while and just saved, saved. Now, this was 2015 at this time. Three years later, 2018, was when I finally had enough money to just say, I'm going to go abroad. And I took my son. We went to Morocco. So when you ask about, did we do the little trips? Yes, we did. (laughs) So the first time we did about five weeks in Morocco, and then we came back. I had enrolled in graduate school because I was like, my son's getting older. What am I going to do? I decided to become a philosopher. So I went to get a PhD in philosophy. (laughs) So random. But while I was there, I took a ceramics class and that's how I ended up as an artist. I work in, I work as an artist now, but at the time I had to come back for class. So I came back for my classes. I was in the, I was in the program and the holidays came around and I said, you know what, we're leaving. And so we left again and we went back to Morocco for another five weeks And then, of course, time to go back to class. We came back. So I had done that twice. And I said to myself, I'm going to figure out how this is the time is now. I need to make this a little bit more long term. Now, for Morocco, the limit is, I think, 90 days without getting a visa. I had not gotten to the point of thinking about residency visas yet. I was still on the I'm going to move to Mexico with five dollars and live on the beach type flow. (laughs) After that, I got rid of my house in Arizona. I was living in a condo. I got rid of my condo in Arizona and I went to live with my then in-laws. I went to live with them in Texas to save more money. We stayed there for about a year. And then this was, so 2018, 2019, 2020, February was when we went to Mexico. And so we were there from February 2020 until July 2020. We had only originally planned on being there for 90 days, but then something happened. Um, COVID. (laughs) So everyone around the world was locked down. So we ended up staying there. The Mexican government was like, don't worry about your entry stamps, your exit stamps. Don't worry, you guys are cool. Just keep spending your American dollars. We're not going to kick you out. We're like, cool. So we just stayed. I ended up in my Groundhog Day situation. My son, surprisingly, did a lot better than me. Maybe because all of his friends back home were suddenly at home. They were no longer at school. So they were like on Discord playing video games all day. So he was fine. He was chilling. I was just like swimming 100 laps a day because I was like going crazy. Every time I left the condo complex, the police were like walking around and they're like, where are you going? Oh, you're going to the store? What are you going to buy? Did I see you yesterday? Interesting. (laughs) So it was quite, I got in trouble going to the beach once. So I was living five blocks from the beach. It was so ridiculous at the beginning of the pandemic, but they shut down the beaches. So I went down there. It's a whole gang of police officers. It's 30 police officers just chilling on the beach. And I'm like, what? I thought the beaches were closed. And they're like, yeah, we're patrolling for people like you. Like, you can't be here. Go home. (laughs) So while I was there, I got into my head. I was like, all right, I need to figure something out because I wanted to go back to America. 
because I was just like, what can I do here? This is not the hammock on the beach. This is like groundhog deal. This is like torture. I need to go home and collect myself. But I had sold my house. I'd sold my condo. I'd gotten rid of everything. And so I wanted to go back to an Airbnb. And for the digital nomads or people that were abroad in early 2020, they're going to know exactly what I'm talking about. The same Airbnb that we stayed in January 2019 literally was five times as much had we tried to go back in April. And so I said to myself, okay, we're going to stay in Mexico. Like even if I did want to brave the super crowded airports and do all of that, I just said, we're going to stay, we're going to ride it out. Luckily I had travel insurance. So I just said, we're going to ride it out. I couldn't get on my original flight. The original flight was out of Merida and I was, I had moved to Playa del Carmen. And so the closest airport was Cancun. So my ticket was not out of Cancun anyway. So my, my travel insurance did cover us, but there was a point during the pandemic where you couldn't get on like a bus to go across state lines in Mexico, unless you were a resident and we were just Americans. So I couldn't get on a bus and go back to Merida to get on the plane anyway. So I just decided to stay. One thing I did do during that time, though, was buy land in Michigan, which I still own, because I was like, I'm starting to feel real space rock out here. I'm starting to feel a little floaty, a little bit like, what do I do? But so I decided, I said, you know what, I want to be an artist. I want to take this a little bit more seriously. I applied to a Master of Fine Arts program in England, and I got accepted. And so they, their international student department sent me a letter and they were like, hey, you're accepted. You need to apply from your home country. So in July of 2020 is when I went back to America to apply for visas and get everything sorted to come to England. Yeah. I asked Ani to describe what it was like to pack up and leave for England and what was it like when they finally landed? What did they do? And how was the overall experience? The first thing we did eat was fish and chips when we landed. So to be fair, we did indulge in some stereotypes. So leading up to it, so I had gone back to the U.S. and I was in Arizona waiting for my for our visas and staying in an Airbnb there. And I had my car, though, because I had not sold my car yet because I'd gone to Mexico thinking a few months I'll come back. But everything was in a storage unit. So Everything was in a storage unit in Arizona. My car was in Michigan because I'd flown out of Michigan. So we flew back from Mexico, little stopover in Dallas, then flew to Grand Rapids in Michigan, picked up my car, drove. Now, mind you, this is July 2020. (laughs) Insanity. Drove from Michigan to Arizona. We stopped a few times and every state was different. Colorado, I think, was the strictest in terms of the way the hotels were when we stopped and they were like, what are you doing here? You're traveling? What do you, you know what I mean? But most of the other states were pretty chill that we stopped in and we just spent one night in a hotel and then got to Arizona. So the issue was where I was staying in Scottsdale in Arizona, which is a suburb, a little bit north of Phoenix, but it doesn't have great public transportation. And I have my son with me, so I needed my car. I decided to sell my car to Carvana and I still had a car payment on it very chaotic. It was so close. Like they, 
Luckily, because the prices started to go up on used cars right at this time, they pretty much paid off my loan. I owed them like four or $500. So I'm like rushing around. This is literally the day that we are meant to fly out. I'm rushing around. They're coming to the condo where we're staying, the, the Airbnb that we're staying. They're going to pick it up in the parking lot. But I had to go to my bank first and get like a cashier's check to them to Carvana for the amount that was over the payoff amount. And then they were going to directly pay off my lender for the car. And then I was going to hop in an Uber and go to the airport. And it was so close. It was so close. Like literally five minutes before the Uber showed up, they were late to come to buy my car. So the first girl called me and she's, oh, we're having like, we've got like, a bunch of people like that want to buy car or want to sell their cars right now because the prices are going up. So we're sending somebody out to you, but there's an issue with your paperwork. And there was something going on with my registration. And I was like, but you guys are supposed to pay off my car. So the issue was they, even though I wanted to sign the title over to them, they needed to pay off my bank first, but they wouldn't pay off my bank until they had my car. And I was like, so can you just send somebody to come get this car? So finally, they sent a guy to come get the car. It was so chaotic. He's dillying and dallying a little bit. But we last minute, we get it done. We get the Uber. And I had purchased really cheap tickets because because I'm, I'm like, I'm moving abroad. I need all the money I can have. So we had a 12-hour layover in Istanbul. So random. So we flew from Phoenix to L.A., and then LA to Istanbul, Turkish Airlines. And so if you fly Turkish Airlines and there's an overnight layover, they put you up in a hotel. It's not a nice hotel, y'all. It's not a nice hotel. <laughs> Don't do it. It seems fine. You look online and it looks really pretty. It looks pretty until you walk in and then your nose is, oh, this is not a nice hotel, y'all. So we had to stay overnight in Istanbul. It was interesting. There... Everything was closed because this is July 2020. This is the thing, like moving countries twice during the height of the pandemic was probably the most insane thing that I decided to do, but I did it because why not? This is life, YOLO. So we get to the hotel and Turkish Airlines says, yeah, you guys have a room. We had to share a room with my son. Fine, even though I bought two tickets, whatever. So they said, you get like a voucher for dinner. So we go down to the restaurant and of course, everybody speaks Turkish. There's like hardly anybody there. There's three people in the restaurant. And so they bring over a menu. And so I point and I'm like, all right, I'll take this. And then the guy goes back and he comes. He's like, we don't have that. And I was like, all right, I'll take this. And he comes back and he's like, we don't have that. And so he comes back a third time. I'm like, what do you have? And he's like, you can have this and this. And it's like, you could have just told me in the beginning. That's all we had. Because it was literally like French fries, a salad, and some like Turkish meat dish. Is That's what you get. That's dinner. So we ate that. We got up in the morning. We got like on the shuttle back to the airport. And so we flew into London. And so at this point, I was super tired. I did not care about money. So I hired a private car, like a limo driver <laughs> to pick us up at the airport. Because I was like, it's, there's no way in hell I'm getting with all this luggage on public transit just to save a few dollars. Like I am done. I've had enough. So our private driver comes and gets us and I'm feeling pretty good. And we go to our Airbnb. Because I got an Airbnb for 30 days because in England, you cannot, you have to have something called the right to rent an apartment. 
So you cannot rent an apartment before you come to England because you have to wait until you land. Now they have, it's a little bit different because they have digital immigration permission. But when I got here in 2020, you had to physically land, do your 14 days of quarantine, go to the closest post office, pick up your little plastic BRP card, take your BRP card with you to an estate agent and say, I am not an illegal immigrant. Can you rent an apartment to me? And they may still say no, because there were plenty who said, no, we do not want to rent to foreigners. Why? Because the year before, 2019 to 2020, that year of international students, when COVID hit, they just left. They didn't pay their rent. They didn't pay their gas, their water, their utilities. They didn't pay. They just left. Because, of course, you think the world is ending. You just leave. And so when I landed, I'm like, yeah, I'm an international student from America. I have my visa permission. I'm completely legal. Like I have all this money. And they're like, no, one guy asked me to pay 12 months in advance. So you want me to pay the entire lease of rent? So I said, okay, because I've been saving money for a long time because I'm like, okay, I've heard it's hard to be an immigrant. So I said, okay, he sent his estate agent back and he was like, actually, he wants 15 months of rent. Sir, are you playing with me right now? (laughs) So I had to move on. But yeah, it was just chaotic. And so we get to the Airbnb. We had to quarantine for 14 days. At that point in time, those were the rules. And they had a thing where they would randomly call you. And if you didn't answer, or they would randomly knock on your door or call you. And if you didn't answer or you weren't in, you would get a fine. So we, like good people, we stayed indoors Went nearly crazy. At one point, we were arguing over who left the kitchen faucet running. Me and my 14-year-old are like, you left the water on. No, you left the water on. We didn't have any food. I didn't have a local bank account. So I had cash, but no local bank account. So how do I get food? Because I'm in an Airbnb. So luckily, I went online on Facebook and I joined one of the expat groups. And one of the local women who had lived here for 14 years, another American, offered to go to the store and get us like bread and toilet paper and milk and stuff. Like literally, she just like dropped it on our doorstep because none of my American cards worked for the delivery apps. Yeah, there was one, I think it was Morrison's, one store that took PayPal. So you could use your American card through PayPal on this particular website but the wait was like two weeks to get a delivery slot. Yeah, so it was pretty tight. So what I did was I went online, I opened Monzo account. If people, you're in Europe too, so you probably know Monzo is like everywhere. So I opened a Monzo account, they mailed me a card. So it took about seven or eight days for me to get like a British bank account so that I could actually order food from like Deliveroo and Uber Eats and all that stuff because I couldn't use my American cards for any of that but we made it. We survived. Yeah. That was like the two weeks, like the time leading up to coming to England. And then the two weeks after that whole block of time was just pure chaos. My nervous system was in overdrive. Hey, everyone. I hope you're enjoying this episode of Flourish in the Foreign. And if you are, be sure to support this podcast by going to buymeacoffee.com slash flourish foreign and buying me a coffee. You can also write a review of the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, and anywhere else you listen to the show. Thank you so much for listening and supporting. Now, back to the episode. 
I asked Ani to share with us what was her first year in Bath like, and what was the process of really settling in and living in England? I'm in the south of England, and that's important because even though Great Britain, I think it's called the island with Wales, England, and Scotland, is a small island, every single part of it is culturally different. Like even from Bath to Bristol, Bath is like a 30-minute train ride from Bristol. From Bath to Bristol, the personalities of people are different. Sort of the social norms are slightly different. So the part that I'm in, people are very like to themselves. So when I first got to England, I thought cheers meant hello. It does not. It means thank you. Yes. So I'm walking along and I'm like, cheers, cheers, cheerio, literally. And people are looking at me like, this woman is insane. (laughs) I cannot tell you how many times having an American accent saved me. I did get teased quite a bit. My first year, I was in a master of fine arts program. And one of the other students, British guy, said that I sounded like a cowboy and would ask me to say bowl because apparently I say bowl in a way that is funny to British people. You do too. So don't look at me like that. Yes, you do. (laughs) Because it's the American way of saying bowl. It's just wrong. They don't like it. And we sound like cowboys. And I'm like, I do not sound like a cowboy. I'm from Michigan. I'm from Oklahoma. What are you talking about? But yeah, so it was really hard to get used to because it's very insular. And it wasn't until I started meeting British people from other parts of the British Isles, like Ireland, Northern Ireland, wonderful. Those are Midwesterners. They are amazing. They say hello. They ask you for the time. They make small talk. They smile. They make jokes when you go into the store. They do not do that in Somerset, in Southern England. (laughs) Absolutely not. So it wasn't until I started meeting people from other parts of the country that I realized that I had landed in what British people call a very posh, a very like standoffish type area. Like everyone has their place. And if they don't know you, if you're not sort of introduced to them, they don't really talk to you. They don't know what class you're from. And that's the thing here. In England, classism is still very much a thing. As an American immigrant, it's different than even being like an Eastern European immigrant. They tend to be a little bit warmer and a little bit more welcoming. But still, they still are very much like waiting for somebody to introduce you and you have to be used by the right people for them to really talk to. Otherwise, they just ignore you. And this is not to talk down on them. Like, I love living in England. It's just their culture. Their culture is they talk to certain people and they don't talk to certain people. And that's that. So it was very lonely. Luckily, the apartment that I rented that I still live in, and I joke with my friend, I have a friend that lives in London, another American. I joke with her. I live in a shop. I live in a flat above a shop. And she's, it's actually kind of romantic, don't you think? And I'm like, all right, whatever. But (laughs) my landlords moved from India to England about 20 years ago, 20, 20, 25 years ago, somewhere around there. And the father actually has a PhD in engineering and he runs an off-license store. So for Americans, that's a liquor store, a convenience store, basically. And so they, him and his wife and their three kids that they raised in England, that was their immigration journey. But when they first moved to England, they bought the shop and they lived in this tiny little two-bedroom flat above the shop where I, that I currently live in. So after years, they were able to buy a house. And during COVID, because there were a lot of restrictions, things were shut down. They weren't getting as many customers. And so they decided to rent out the shop. And it just so happened that I answered an ad 
And I came to talk to the guy and I said, I'm an international student. I just told him my life. And he's like, all right, you can live here. And I was like, that's it. And I was like, I don't have a reference. They call them guarantors in England. I don't have a guarantor. And he's no, that's fine. You can just pay regular rent. So I got to pay my rent monthly. He was totally chill. So I got super lucky. I was prepared to pay 12 months in advance because I've been told that's what it takes as a foreigner to rent in England. But he was like, no, I was an international student too. And why not pass it along? So I think I got really lucky with having an immigrant for a landlord as well. And I still live there. They actually lowered my rent when I graduated. So that's another story. Yeah, it's a very interesting story. But that's year two. Year one, I moved in and I'm living there and I'm doing my Master of Fine Arts. The school was shut down twice. The government shut down our school. So there were certain courses, like if you were a doctor, a dentist in training, like certain courses like that, that were exempt from the lockdowns. But November 2020, they had one, I think for three or four weeks, we couldn't go into campus. And then January, again, we didn't go back. We were meant to go back to campus sometime in early January, and we didn't go back till the end of February. So those were like two government lockdowns that essentially said you couldn't go to school. You had to do everything remotely. I was a master of fine arts studio art major. And so essentially, eventually they let us go back because even though it wasn't, it's not like you're not becoming a doctor you still can't do the course. It's still hands-on in a way. And so at the end of February, they said like certain hands-on students could go back and we were part of that group. But to go back to campus, it was like a ghost town because the only students on campus were the fine arts students that physically had, like I work on a lathe, which is 4,000 pound big machine. And I can't physically take that home versus the digital students, even though they were fine arts, they still worked from home. So it was really like a ghost town. And sometimes I would go into campus and I'd be the only one there. I wish I had more videos of Bath that first year because Bath is a UNESCO World Heritage Site. It has the Roman baths. It's thousands of years old. And then it has all the Georgian architecture. We get, I think they said something like six or seven million tourists a year through Bath. And that's a lot considering it's a small town. So when there are no tourists there, I think the population is like 150,000, if that. It's super low. There's not that many people there considering how many how much tourist traffic we get. So during the during 2020 and during the early part of 2021 when tourists weren't coming, I would walk past the Bath Abbey And you would just see, I would walk down Milsom Street, which is like the famous Georgian Street. There's the Jane Austen Museum and all that stuff. And there would just be pigeons. Absolutely no one, nothing, like a ghost town. So that was the first year. That was my first year there. It was very like lonely in a lot of ways. I think I listened to Solange's album, A Seat at the Table. And then when I get home, I listen to both of those albums on repeat. Something about just feeling how Black those albums are. Like, I absolutely love both of those albums. And it just made me feel like at home a little bit more. I joined Clubhouse. Was it 2020? I think the end of 2020, I joined Clubhouse. And that helped a lot, too, because sometimes I couldn't sleep at night and I'd wake up and it the Americans are up. So I'd get to go on and hear Americans talking and There were expats and stuff on there, people going through the same thing who were in new countries. Maybe they had just moved or even if they had moved before the pandemic, if you don't have deep roots in a country and you're dealing with something like COVID, like you just don't have, people were only inviting like their super close, like childhood friends and their families over. You had to be very tight with people. Certain people were just not inviting people over to their homes. 
And so if you didn't have that type of network and you were an expat in 2020, it was really hard because you didn't get to socialize. So that was my first year. So as we've discussed on this podcast and episodes before, when you move abroad to study and you're studying abroad, there are some complications that happen when you graduate with your visa. It is one of those things that all international students have to go through. So I asked Ani, what was it like when she graduated and how did she have to revise her visa in order to stay in England? Yeah, so I graduated. At the end of my first year, I graduated in November 2021. I finished classes in September 2021, but then officially graduated November 2021. And then I had to go through the whole renewing the visa rigmarole, which was super stressful because you don't know. And the way it worked, the visa that I got, the second visa was a new visa for 2021. And so they didn't tell us like what the visa was until like a few weeks before we could apply. And for my application, I applied on the very last day that my current visa was valid. And so the way it works in the United Kingdom is if you have a valid visa, let's say it expires on December 30th and you apply for your next visa, December 30th or before, you can stay in the country under the rules of the previous visa that you were on while your application is pending. If you apply December 31st or after, you have to get the fuck out of the country. (laughs) You got to go. So it was very stressful. I literally applied at 4 p.m. on the day that my visa was expiring. Now, mind you, I have my son with me. Like, it's very much like super stressful. But I got the application in. And then everyone in my group who like all the other students were like, yeah, I got mine back in two hours. I got mine back in a day and mine did not come back for six weeks. And I didn't find out until later why it didn't come back for six weeks. It was because my dependent was under 18 and there was a switch from physical metric residence permits to digital ones. I got a digital one because I'm over 18, but because my son was under 18, he still had to have a physical one. So I had to physically take him into an immigration center and that was the delay. But no one else in my group, none of the other international students had kids. And so no one was, it was just very what's happening because no one could tell me what was happening. It was the first year that we had this visa status, this visa category, but eventually we got the visas back. And so in that time, while I was waiting for my new visa, I did a job interview at a museum, the American Museum in Britain, which is in Bath for an assistant curator position. And I got the position, but I couldn't sign my contract because another thing about the visa rules are if you're under the visa rules from your previous visa, you can only do work that your previous visa would cover. And so the first visa that I had, the international student visa, did not allow me to sign a full-time permanent contract, but my next visa did. So I had to wait And luckily, they were really wonderful. The chief curator was absolutely lovely. And she's no worries. We can actually have you start in January because by then my visa was going to have to be back. And it did. I got it back early December. That was my first year. Pure chaos, but a lot of fun. A lot of like emotional ups and downs that I did not expect. Like it was very emotional. That first Thanksgiving away from home, thankfully, everyone was locked down because we had like a FaceTime, me and my cousins and all of our kids. I think there were like eight of us 
on like a FaceTime screen and everybody's dialed in from all over the country. And it hasn't happened since because of course you can physically go now, but it just so happened to coincide with that year. Everyone was locked down. And so it really helped me in my transition abroad because it, I felt like I was in the same situation as everyone else. It didn't feel that different. As Ani has already shared, her son is on the autism spectrum. And so I asked her, how did she prepare him for this move abroad? Every child is different, but very similar in terms of the prep work. I have always had to prep my son. If we're going to the grocery store from the time he was three years old, I would do like a countdown. I'd say, okay, tomorrow we're going to the grocery store. In the morning, this afternoon, after your nap, we're going to the grocery store. Morning snack time. Okay, after this snack, you're going to take a nap and then we're going to the grocery store. So I've always done a countdown like that. So I'm very used to that. And I think that's, I think that's very common with a lot of kids on the spectrum. You really just have to prep them just so that they know what's coming. With my son, while we were moving around, Every time we moved to a new place in the United States, I would go to Ikea. So I started this when he was about four years old. I went and got like everything in his bedroom from Ikea. And every time we moved to a new place, even if I physically wasn't able to take everything, like if I couldn't move the furniture, it was okay because I would just go to the closest Ikea and get him the exact same stuff. And I would just paint his walls the exact same color. And so that helps a lot, especially because he's just like a nerdy kid who likes to be on his computer. He met like he all of his friends. He's had the same friends for 10 years now. They all met at a summer camp at Arizona State. Um, This like nerd camp. I call it nerd camp. It was a camp for kids that are like into YouTubing and videoing. And he does animation and stuff like that. So it's just all kids that did that sort of thing. And they're all tech savvy. So they stayed in contact over the last 10 plus years. So he was always able to, no matter where we went, he could always dial in, get onto Discord and talk to his friends. I think that helped a lot. We did unschooling. So what that just means, unschooling is a child-led form of schooling, where essentially whenever he got interested in something, I would get him the tools to support that. So except one time I said, no, I'm not buying you that. So yeah, when he got into animation, I got him a computer and like a drawing tablet. He got into making video games with his friends. They formed like a video game, like an animation studio. So one person does characters, rigging, one person does the sound, another person does like the game levels. They do all this stuff. But he did come to me at one point and he said, mom, I need a physics engine. So for people that don't know what a physics engine is, I didn't know what it was. So I'm Googling it. I'm like, oh, I'm buying a physics engine. Ma'am, they are thousands of dollars. I'm not buying that. So that's how he got into physics in terms of homeschooling. So him and his friends had to get on YouTube and had to learn physics so they could write their own little physics engine for their little video game. Because I was not about to drop several stacks on a physics engine for him to, like, I wanted him to learn. Like, I'm always trying to be, like, very supportive of, like, this is what you want to do as a career. This is what you want to do with your life. But I had to draw the line somewhere. I was like, I do have to pay rent too. So unfortunately I cannot buy you that, (laughs) but it helps whenever he wants to do something, he has to learn how to do it. So he had to learn physics. He had to learn math. He had to learn programming, programming logic in terms of like deductive logic that I took in college. He had to learn that. And so just buying him books, Sometimes I would sign him up for online classes, like without school, depending on what his interests were. Sometimes I would send him in person to classes or workshops or like the summer camp that I sent him to. 
just educational stuff like that. But it, there, there was no curriculum. It was very much do what you want to do. Now, when we got to England, I had originally thought to myself, I'll enroll him in school. That didn't work out for a couple of reasons. One, they have something called A-levels in England. And I was like, what is that? I still, I do not understand A-levels. He's enrolled in college now. He started college when he was 16 because here in England, you can start college at 16. So he went and got enrolled in that. He's doing an art and design program. He's getting a diploma from the University of the Arts London. And I'm like, oh, it sounds fancy. But his teachers tried to explain A-levels to me. And I'm like, I am so glad I did not enroll him in school because I'm going to tell you right now, I have no idea what you're talking about. So apparently in England, like kids need a certain number of A-levels. They have clearing that they do. They have tests that they take. It's a lot. So I just decided we're not going to deal with that. My son was also, he's a lot more, how do I say this, particular than I am. Like for instance, if there's like food that's past the expiration date in the fridge, I'll smell it and I'll eat it. If I feel like it's fine, he will not. (laughs) So when COVID came around, he just did not want to be around kids. Like he would say things like, like, I just saw them wipe their arm on their sleeve. Like, why is this kid on this bus coughing? He didn't cover his mouth. He was not down with it at all. So he didn't want to go to school in person. So from 14 to 16, we continued unschooling. So the first two years. So he just started college in August of 2022, this year. So this is his first year in college. He absolutely loves it. It's the reason he's not here in Japan with me because he didn't want to leave his classes because apparently he loves it more than me. <laughs> but he really is enjoying it. So I told him, I because he finished his classes December 9th and I'm like, I can get you a, I can get you a flight to Tokyo. We can meet in Tokyo. Because I'm not in Tokyo, actually. I'm on the island of Kyushu right now. But I'm like, we can meet in Tokyo. We can have some fun. And he's like, I know. I'm on vacation. So he's doing his own thing. He is, I'm not really sure what's going to happen after. Hopefully next summer, he'll do an internship, maybe in animation. He's really into animation. So maybe he'll do an internship in London or something like that. But he's just doing college. Like we did the unschooling thing. He has a homeschool high school diploma. He took the ACT in June. So we went to London for that. And he did well enough on the ACT to be able to start school. So that's that. I know it's different for everyone. A lot of people will tell you in expat groups, if you are moving to England from America, if your kids are in American schools, two things. You can enroll them in an international school with an American curriculum. It's going to cost you 30, 50, 60,000 pounds a year, or you can come before they're 14. And hopefully they start A-levels because they start A-levels at 14. Hopefully they can catch up with their peers or you can homeschool. It is very difficult. Like that age, like 14 and above is really difficult in England to integrate if you're not already on the British education system. Because the British education system from those ages is very different than the American education system. So that's just something to keep in mind for anybody coming to the UK. And they have teenagers, like late teenagers just keeping in mind, what do you want to do? Some people even do like online charter schools, like American schools that will give them an American high school diploma because you can go to college in the UK with an American high school diploma. It's no problem. There's international students that come all the time. It's just the issue of finishing high school that I think trips a lot of people up. But my son's done. He's got his high school diploma. He's got a homeschool high school diploma, but he's done. 
I asked Ani to share with us her experience with healthcare, the NHS in England. My first year here, I had to go in, I think I had been here, I went in March of 2021 and I got here October. So five or six months after I got here, I had to go in to see a doctor. I had found a lump. So I was referred to the hospital immediately. And I was pretty happy with the care that I received, literally from finding the lump and being like, oh shit, what's happening? To going to the GP, to being referred to the hospital, to seeing a surgeon for a biopsy, to getting the results back. They called me and sent me a letter, 10 days. So it was pretty fast. I later learned when I talked about it in the expat groups that I probably won the postcode lottery is what they call it here. So essentially, if you live in a more expensive or posh area with low population density, you tend to have better health care, even though the NHS is national, it's for everyone. We all pay the same amount. I paid, as an immigrant, you pay more, you pay the immigration health surcharge fee. And then when you get a job, you pay what British people pay. So you pay a little bit more than them. But we all have the same access, essentially. It just depends on where you live. It just so happens that Not only do I live in Bath, which is a little bit more of an expensive area, so our council tax is higher. Like my council tax is even higher than my friend that lives in London. And council tax, it's like property tax that we pay in the U.S. It covers our public services. So it covers like the trash removal, covers the street cleaning, like it goes towards buses, like all those public services. We, But even if you rent in the U.K., you pay it, not just like for homeowners, it's for everyone. And so the council tax is a little bit higher because it's like a little bit more expensive area, but the services are pretty good. The streets are always clean, like everything's always on time. And I think that also translates to our NHS here. And then low population density. I live in an older neighborhood in Bath. And most of like when I go to my GP, there's like mostly like people with gray hair there. So most of the people have lived there for a long time. I suspect a lot of the patients are dying off. They're like 60, 70, 80. There's not a lot of competition to get seen by a doctor. That sounds terrible, but it is what it is. When I went in, I got seen immediately. I have asthma and I just went in and was like, oh, I have asthma. And they like referred me, right? Like they, they didn't really refer me. They're just like, okay, here's your prescription. They send me text messages. I have an app on my phone. They send me little text messages and they're like, do you want a flu shot? Do you want a cervical exam? Would you like to come in and get your asthma checked? They just send you the, and they're like, click on this link. You're like, you know, it's like a smorgasbord. Do you want this? Oh, we see that you're 40 years old. Would you like a mammogram? It's totally up to you. But if you want one, here you go. And then you click on the link and it takes you to a calendar and you choose the day and the time. And then you go in and you get whatever you're going to get. Your exam or your any sort of treatment or anything that you want. They have a number that you call. I don't know what the number is. I think it's 111 or something. I have to Google it every time. But you call them. It's like an NHS helpline. So instead of dialing 911 like we would in the US, you call them and you're like, oh, I have a health problem. What do I do? And they tell you like, wait till 8 a.m., go to your GP or go to the hospital immediately or go to urgent care or just go to the pharmacist. And there's been so many times where in the US, I would go to a doctor and they're like, just go to the pharmacist and tell them what your problem is. And they'll give you something like when I came back from Morocco in August of this year, I just went for 10 days and I had an intestinal issue. I'm pretty sure that a guy at the hotel gave me tap water 
but like he, I didn't speak any French. He didn't speak any English and it wasn't clear what was happening. But as soon as I tasted the water, I was like, this does not taste like bottled water. And it was in a bottle, but it didn't taste like bottled water. And so when I got back to the UK, I was really sick. Like I lost four kilos in like less than a week. I was really sick. So I called the like emergency NHS number and I told them my symptoms and they're like, can you walk? But like the closest pharmacy is like literally a block from me. And I was like, I can walk to the pharmacy. I can make it there. And they're like, yeah, just go down there. They'll give you something. So I went down there. I told the pharmacist all my business and she gave me two medications and I was feeling better within a couple of days. So for a lot of stuff, you don't even have to see a doctor. You can just literally walk into any pharmacy they have never asked me for my NHS number. So even though technically like you are supposed to be a tax paying person to get the NHS, they don't ask. <laughs> they just assume that because it's universal. They just assume that if you're here and you're sick, we're supposed to take care of you, which can be an issue for visitors. Like some people have come over to visit and they go to the hospital. You don't get a bill. Nobody like charges you anything, which is fine if you're just a tourist and you're like, coming and going and you're living your life. But if you're coming and visiting and you're using the NHS, but you didn't pay the immigration health surcharge fee or you don't pay out of your paycheck, and then let's say five years down the road, you decide to immigrate and become a citizen, then it will show like, oh, she used the NHS as a tourist in 2002 and she didn't pay us like 5,000 pounds. So if if you don't actually have NHS access, you probably should pay. The problem is you have to really hound them to pay because they're not used to people paying at the point of service. And so there is a way for them to bill you if you come before you get your residency visa, before you pay your fees, if you want to come and do a little scouting trip and you do end up in the hospital, there is a way to pay them, but you have to keep like reminding them that you have to pay. But other than that, it's very straightforward. I have been completely happy. Some people who have chronic conditions are not happy. I have asthma, which is a chronic condition, and I've been very happy They've reminded me when I've forgotten that I need a checkup. I just walk into the pharmacist whenever my inhaler is empty and they just hand me a new one. Literally just hand me one. So I'm very happy. To be Black and abroad. I love asking my guests what is their experience of being a Black woman abroad? Because as we've discussed many times on this podcast, Blackness and womanhood are not monolithic experiences. So I asked Ani to share with us her reflections on her time being abroad. For me, it has been a lot more relaxing. I don't feel as stressed. I used to feel like stressed when my son would go out with his cousins, even when he was like 11 or 12, when they would go down the street, I would feel stressed like something might happen to them. Like they might be targeted for like harassment or something like that. I don't feel that stress. And that's completely internal. Not every mother in America feels that, but I felt that. So I feel a lot better about that now. I feel better because the police don't have guns, which is of course, you know, they still harass people. They still do stuff. But as a mother, that does make me feel a little bit better. I feel safe. Like, I feel safe that my son is home in the UK and I'm here working in Japan. And we have a community of people around us. We have our landlords who are immigrants. We have like neighbors that are like a two minute walk away. I've got friends in different cities that can come if there's an emergency. So he has people around him. But I do not feel any sort of hesitation of if he wants to like get up and get on the bus and go to the store. 
I just don't feel any worry at all. I feel like he's completely fine. So that as a mother, that's helping me with the transition to adulthood. I think it would have been a lot harder for me personally in America, watching my son transition from being a boy to a man in America, just with with things being like they are. I feel a lot better about that. I feel like there's a lot of opportunities too. Like we're not in London. We're about an hour and a half by train from London, but close enough that I feel like he can go and do internships if he wants to, if he decides to do the second half of his university. So the first two years, I'd like him to stay home because he's only 16. So he's doing his degree at a local college. But if he wants to go when he's 18, I feel comfortable that it's close enough that I can hop on the train and go see him. And he's in a big city. He has access to a lot of resources, access to, you know, from St. Pancras Station in London, you can go right to Paris if that's what he wants to do. You can make it right to mainland Europe and then all the trains from there, you can go anywhere. So I feel really good about it. I feel really good about choosing Europe as well. I know that's a question for a lot of people. What continent do you choose? Yeah. I just feel relaxed. I feel relaxed about being a mother abroad. Like, it's nice. I mean, as a Black American, and I say that because I feel as a Black American in the UK, we do not get treated like a Black British person, African person, a Caribbean person. Not even, I have some friends in the UK that like their parent is like Black Caribbean and their other parent is like white British. And they, I feel like, get discriminated against more than we do as Black Americans. As strange as that sounds, I don't know what it is about British people in America. Like, they tend to even forget that we're immigrants. It's just, they have a different reaction to us. So when you're walking, when they don't know, there's that's one thing. For instance, I went to Waitrose one time with my son when we first got here. And I had been by myself quite a few times Um The weird thing is like a lot of the security guards at like posh, like more expensive places are black people. And I'm like, why do you have them in this role? It's just weird. But so the security guard was like a black British guy and he started following us around. And I've been to this Waitrose many times. I've not been followed. But mind you, my son is tall. He's six feet tall. He's got dreadlocks down to here now because he's been growing them for years. And in the UK, a lot of Caribbean guys have the dreadlocks. So they like they code them as something else. So we're walking around. I noticed the guy following us. I'm like, what? So I turn around and say, oh, can I help you? And he goes, oh, you're American? And I said, yeah. And he's, oh, nothing. And he walks away. And yeah, definitely. And I'm talking to some of my Black British friends, especially the ones who are like first generation from the Caribbean, they definitely notice a difference. Some of them even say to me, like, why would you come here from America? It's so much more racist than America. I was like, first of all, they're killing us. They're literally killing us in America. So I'm not going to hold you. I'm not going to not invalidate your feelings, but they're literally murdering us in America. So I'm going to stop you right there. But it is different. It's different in a lot of ways for them than for us. And so I can't project my experience as a Black American onto their experience as a Black British person or a Caribbean person or an African person in the UK. For Black Americans, though, I do think that the passport privilege overrules a lot in terms of getting into spaces, in terms of getting jobs. People were so shocked when I got my job. So they were like, like the museum industry, arts and culture, arts and heritage is a super competitive industry to begin with. And the fact that I don't have a degree in museum studies, I don't have a degree in curation. I have, I have a degree in fine art and I have a degree in history and philosophy. 
And the fact that I got a job as an assistant curator when people are fighting over these jobs. And I think maybe part of it is like the exoticness of, oh, we have an American working for us. And it's not just Black Americans, it's just American in general. It's just, oh, let's hire the American. So there's a lot of privilege. So it's, I live in the countryside, essentially. Like, where I live in Bath, it's one side, you look out my window, there's like the city lights. The other side, you look out, there's just hills and sheep. So I'm like pretty much out there. This is very homogenous. They're, I would say, 95% white British where I live but I don't feel uncomfortable. I do notice people looking at me sometimes, but never in an unsafe way, if that makes sense. They look at me like you look a little different. As a Black American, I feel like we don't even really look like Black British people. We look like ourselves. So they look at us like, "Mm, you look different. You look a little weird, but that's it. No hostility. I've never had trouble with, other than that one incident with my son where I realized he had coded us as like Caribbean or something. I just have not had any issues, which is, I guess, surprising considering it's 95% white British here. But yeah, just no issues, just like normally living my life. Um, People remember me more. I have brown skin. So like when I go in sometimes to like a restaurant, they remember my order. There's a Chinese restaurant I go to and the owner always knows exactly the spice level. And it's funny because they hired a new cashier probably like three or four months ago. So when I went in and I ordered my order and so I stepped back and he like comes over and he says something to her and I realized he was like fixing my order because I told her spicy and she's like, spicy? I'm like, yeah, spicy. (laughs) And then he's like telling them like, give her the chopsticks, she's fine. So that's sweet. And I think partly because I don't look like anybody else that's there that people remember me more. But I don't mind it. Soft life. The best life? I asked Ani for her thoughts on Black girl soft life. I think I have always lived a soft life. My late grandfather used to say, you know, like that thing where you take like all the bags from the car at the same time. And he used to say people call it the lazy load. But my last name is Lacey. And so he said, that's the lacy load because we're naturally lazy. (laughs) We're a lazy family. So I've always been that way. I've never been a hard worker. Straight C student through school. I have the devil's own luck, honestly. Like, I don't even know how I got into, I test well. <laughs> so that's a good thing. Like I got into law school and I got, I get internships. I get like stuff, but I am like literally a straight C student and that's my life. I just don't, I just don't ever feel like I need to work hard. And I just never have. I just never have. But I do think I'm living a pretty good life. I'm almost 40. People ask, why don't you have any wrinkles? Because I just don't care. I don't care to have wrinkles because I don't care to be bothered. You'd mentioned something in your episode about the soft life, about like sleeping and taking naps. And it's funny because when I was 22, I distinctly remember getting rid of my watch. I wear an Apple watch now, but I didn't wear a watch for years. And I don't, I still don't use alarms to wake up in the morning because my grandmother pulled me aside and I was still in school. I was finishing school. And she said, there are a lot of things you can make up for in life. You cannot make up beauty sleep. (laughs) I'll never forget that. Is she calling me ugly? (laughs) Or is she warning me? You're going to be ugly if you keep this up. I took that to heart. I took that to heart and I got rid of my alarm clock. And if I'm late, 
I don't try to be late. Like I try to respect people's time. But what that means for me is that if I know I have to get up at 9 a.m., like for instance, tomorrow morning, I'm getting up at 9 a.m. I'm going to go meet another artist and look at their kiln. That means I'll probably go to bed after this. I'll probably go to bed at 10 p.m. Just so that I get enough sleep so that I can naturally wake up before 9 a.m. I don't put myself in a situation where I need an alarm clock or I need hardness. And I think that's fine. I'm not the type... I have noticed the soft life aesthetic. I've never been the all-inclusive, I'm going to drink until I pass out type girl. And I feel like a lot of the soft life is like that. It's we're going on a luxury, all-inclusive trip. And I'm like, that's cool. And that's, that's for you. But to me, that's not necessarily the soft life. That's consumerism. And that's your business. If that's If you want to consume, you want to consume. But to me, that is not something aspirational. It's not aspirational for me. I've been to all-inclusive resorts and I don't find them to be that fun. I don't find like just shopping for shopping's sake to be that fun. I do like quality. I like quality fabrics. I like to feel quality on me. I wear like the silk scrunchies, the stuff like, like I buy quality stuff, but I just don't overconsume. And I think like the aesthetic right now is very much, um, even I saw something about treating yourself and this woman is going through and she's like taking all the stuff out of her packages and putting it in all these like matching packages in her kitchen. And I'm thinking to myself, like I do zero waste in the UK. So I shop at a zero waste store and I have these little canvas bags that I go and I'm thinking to myself, what is the point? Why not just do zero waste? Take it a step further and do something for the environment. It doesn't have to just be aesthetically pleasing. Like it can be aesthetically pleasing and also creating a soft life for our children because my son gets on me about that. My son is the reason I started recycling like 12 years ago because he was like, clearly you don't love me if you're killing the planet. I was like, oh, (laughs) called to the carpet. (laughs) Okay. So I've been on it since then because I'm like, okay, if this little eight-year-old is calling me to the carpet, I need to get it together. So yeah, I see that more. I see it more as a substantial thing, a thing of creating a life where, for instance, I always live beneath my means, always. And I have done that since I was 19 years old and I aged out of state care and I was my only safety net. Always live beneath my means, always have more than a year of my living expenses in liquid assets put away, and then hopefully more so that if I need it, so that if a job stresses me out, I can walk away from it. I did six months of my job as a curator and I walked away. I had a six month, it was like a six month trial period. And I think like people look at those trial periods and they're like, oh, I hope that they don't fire me after six months. And I looked at it as this is my time to figure out if I want you as much as you want me. And unfortunately at the end of the six months, I'm not doing this. I'm not getting, I'm not working nine to five. And I worked from home like 85% of the time. And I was like, I still don't want to go to these meetings though. So I'm gonna have to say goodbye. I just, I didn't want to live my life that way. So I just left. I just said, hey, and they're wonderful people. Like absolutely loved my supervisor, my chief curator. But just the idea of going back to working nine to five, even though a lot of times I worked from home or I might be on a trip. I might be in Cornwall working from the beach in Cornwall. I just didn't want to be beholden to someone. I didn't want the director sending me a note and saying, you have to have a meeting at this time. I'm also an artist and I found myself not being able to go to my studio as much. So for me, soft life was really like about flexibility and about control to have your own life the way that you want it. So I think that I live that way. I just chill. 
I just chill. I go where the wind blows me in terms of like how I feel. I'm responsible. I'm fiscally responsible. I think that's the only reason I'm able to live this life is because no matter what it looks like, I am not, one, I'm not cheap because being cheap, I think will bite you in the ass, period. So I do support that idea of moving towards buying quality things when you do buy things because they last longer. They improve your quality of life. If you're sleeping on better quality bed and sheets and things like that, you get better sleep, you feel better, you look better, you go out, you go to the store, people look at you, you have a glow, they treat you better. So it it spills over into all aspects of your life. So I am a supporter of that. I'm not a supporter of being a spendthrift. I'm not a supporter of doing it for the gram. Never been a person that does it for the gram. I just, I just, I think it's a phase. I think it's a cultural phase that people are going through right now. Hopefully the pendulum shifts because I think a lot of people don't fully understand it and it can be very consumerist. And I think like, Once my son, once I became a parent, of course, I start thinking about the future. Once my son really put it in my face, if you do not care about the environment, you do not care about me, then I became a lot more involved in I'm going to do zero waste, which I'm not perfect with zero waste, but I try. I'm going to recycle everything. I'm going to use less. I think that's like the real soft life of making an environment where everyone can live and thrive because it doesn't matter if you have a Gucci purse and you're on the beach at an all-inclusive if you look out and there's just garbage washing up on the beach or you can't breathe because there's smog like that's not going to work long term so hopefully this is the phase cultural phase wellness i asked ani what is her personal definition of wellness and how has her experiences living abroad influenced her concept and practice of wellness for me For my wellness, I like to be able to comfortably fall asleep at night, comfortably wake up in the morning, not have a lot of worries. Having some good stress is good. Having a little bit of, for instance, today I met with some government officials that are funding my residency. And so that was a little bit like, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? But yeah, other than that, I don't really think that having a lot of stress in your life is good for you. Not having a lot of things outside of your control bothering you. I don't think that's good for you. So for me, being able to let go of the things that I can't control means that I'm well. Being able to have my creative practice, which I find to be really important. I think that creativity is really important aspect of humanity, being human. And so having that practice, whatever it is for you, some people like to make music, some people like to sing, dance, walk, talk, even creating this podcast is a creative practice in a way. So for me, that's wellness, having the space to do that. I don't think I would be able to have a studio in the US the way that I'm able to have a studio in the UK. I don't think that I would have access to as many resources to support the fact that I have a career that I really enjoy, that I really love in the US the way that I do in the UK. So I think that contributes to my wellness. In terms of mental wellness, we've touched on this in terms of my son and parenting. I just feel so much less stressed and less worried. I have the regular worries of a parent, but I don't have that additional layer of parenting a Black son in America anymore. So that, I think, definitely contributes to my mental well-being. And then my own sort of childhood in America, being in foster care and like wanting to get away from that system and wanting to get away from the social system that sort of not to go like conspiracy theorists, but like definitely in the 80s and 90s, I felt like black families were being torn apart by these government policies. 
and the ways that they were applied. So whether they were intentional or not, I can't say. I was a child at the time, but I do think that definitely had a negative impact on me. That subconscious was always there of feeling like I don't feel safe having a Black family in America in a way that I feel safe having a Black family outside of America. So yeah, so that helps my wellness. But yeah, I think like wellness is just not feeling super stressed all the time. And this type of invisible stress that's killing us, giving us heart disease, giving us fertility problems, all of these, all the shit that we deal with in America. Thank you so much, Ani, for sharing your beautiful story with all of us. If you're interested in keeping up with Ani, you can via social media. So I am an artist and I'm on Instagram pretty regularly. I post two or three times a week. Not, not as regularly as I should, but pretty regularly. And it's Ani Lacey Ceramics on Instagram. And then I have a website, AniLacy.com. So it's A-N-I-L-A-C-Y.com. And so there's like a little mailing list you can join if you want to get updates about me and just like my artwork and what I'm doing. And I have some shows coming up here in Japan. If you join my mailing list, you'll see like the shows and stuff that I have coming up in the future. Yeah. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode of Flourish in the Foreign. And for more information about our guest, be sure to check out this episode's show notes on the website, flourishtotheforeign.com. That's where you'll see pictures, a full bio, and ways that you can connect with this guest. If you are considering a move abroad, I suggest you grab the Moving Abroad with Intention Guide. It is the perfect first step for you to get clear and confident and start to develop a strong intention for your move abroad. It's a guide with over 43 pages, all designed to help you get honest about what you're looking for when you move abroad and help you define what a life well-lived abroad means and what the criteria must be for your move abroad to support that life. You can grab that guide at the website flourishintheforeign.com on our resources page. Also, there's a link in the description of this episode. And as always, big thanks to Zachary Higgs, who produced the music of this podcast. Remember, it's not about moving abroad. It's not about being abroad. It's about flourishing abroad. So go abroad and cultivate a life well lived. See you next time. On the next episode of Flourish in the Foreign. You know, put me anywhere and I'm going to thrive. Like, I'm going to find a way to do well. And it's not about the place, you know. The place can have better or worse setups objectively. Like, okay, Tokyo versus Berlin. Well, offhand, I don't speak Japanese. So I probably will get further quicker in Berlin where I can use English. But that doesn't necessarily mean I won't be able to eventually thrive in both places.